This episode discusses suicide, mental health, and some topics which some listeners might find distressing. Please listen with caution, and if you are distressed by any of the topics in this episode, call Lifeline on 13 11 14. episode 11 thanks very much for listening wherever you are around the country around the globe or maybe in my house because maybe it's just me and mum that listen but anyway it's a pleasure to have you on board for this episode i'm joined by a very special man um a great friend of mine a man named simon orchard he's an absolute legend as you will no doubt find out in the show i don't want to give anything away but um it's a pretty It's a pretty incredible episode, and Simon was very brave with a lot of the things he talked about. Uh, He talked about his own experiences of anxiety. He talked about love and loss. He talked about family, resilience, and and yeah, it was really great to have him on board. I don't I don't want to give anything away. You'll just have to you just have to listen. Um, It's a it's a bit of a long episode, but I guarantee you that that it's worth your time. Now I think that might be about it for me. I can't wait for you to hear this episode. Make sure you like, subscribe, tell your friends about the show, um, leave a rating, leave a review. It truly does help. Episode 11, Simon Orchard. Let's go. Well, I'm very excited to be sitting virtually across from this man he's on the other side of the country um but it's it's very good to have him on the show and i'm very grateful that he's joined me it was quite short notice i i was a bit stuck for guests and i thought oh you know who's who's an easy one that i can get on board and and i sent a text and sure enough simon orchard you've said yes mate and you've joined me on short notice mate welcome to the show thanks very much for coming on Mate, it's my pleasure. You know why I said yes? A couple of reasons. One, our relationship obviously goes back many, many years. This is more as a favour to your brother, Jim, who I love dearly. So that's the first one. Second one, I've tried to do, and, and, you know, I guess successfully in some ways, done some podcast stuff before, and it's a pain in the ass, man. It is to get, to track people down. And the way things are going these days, it's become infinitely more difficult to try and find the people that you want. I know it seems easy, like we're all socially connected, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook. I'll just shoot off a DM, et cetera. But you can only imagine what famous people are getting in their inboxes, right? Little old me. I'm lucky to get hello from, you know, a meme from my wife maybe once a day. So as soon as you shoot something through, I'm all over it. Yeah, any excuse to get away from the kids of the family. <laughs> itching, you know I mean? itching. You did say that, you know, if push came to shove, you'd just lock yourself in your garage and uh, and give me an hour of your time. It looks like you're even in a in a spare room or something, mate. So we haven't even had to hide in the garage, which is handy. Well, people obviously can't see because it's a, an audio medium, but I'm in the music room of my dad's house. Okay. So yeah, yeah interesting. So behind me, 
I've got a um a huge cello, which I've never actually seen a cello in every in anyone's house. Oh except. lord, that is actually that's massive. That's about seven <laughs> foot tall, mate. Everyone always says, "Oh, is that a double bass?" And I'm like, "No, I think it's a cello." Like, and I always do that school of rock quote where I tip it on its side and I go, "Cello," you know. With Jack Black. <laughs> um, but Dad's like a real muso, and I, you know, for context. Um, about two months ago, my family, so my wife and my two kids and my dog, moved from Wollongong to Maitland. Um, uh, yeah, you know, in search of a better life. And uh, the big city. My mum and dad, the big city. Yeah, well, the smaller city, but you know, you get the point. And my <laughs> yeah. mum and dad were like, "Come and stay with us." And I was like, "You beauty!" And the, you know, the world these days is increasingly more expensive. And if you're lucky enough to do it, I can see people now saying, "Oh, yeah, you know, typical." Privileged kid, but um, <laughs> mate, more chance I get to spend with family, the better. And um, you know, who knows? We might dive into that a little bit more later on. Well, I reckon let's get stuck in right now because we do our gratitude, as I as I said, and I know that you're a you're a big family man, as you mentioned. You've got two young kids and your beautiful wife, Ellie, and obviously mum and dad. Um, you spent a fair bit of time away from your family when you moved to Perth for hockey, which we'll touch on later, but. Gratitude, mate. Now we both do three. Most people get yeah. me to go first, but you know you've really taken the reins of the show. Do you want to? Do you want to take the reins and uh and steer me in a direction, or do you want me to stay going first? Yeah, and I'll not only steer you uh, in the right direction, mate. I so I listen, obviously, of course, to the show, and I've heard some different people do their things, and each to their own. When when I sort of scribbled down a few answers, I was going down the same sort of trend as a lot of people, you know, family, friends, health, etc. And don't get me wrong, I am grateful for all of those things every single day. But I've decided to change tack. I'm going to open the spinnaker and I'm going to head in a totally different direction. I'm very uh, excited. You, you tell me, uh, you tell me when to shut up. So look, for starters, mate, I'm I'm grateful for my dog. Kevin, who you know, is a border collie, um, orange, I guess, orange border collie, so quite striking, very good looking boy. And the reason I'm the reason I'm grateful for him, mate, um, my job at the moment, I work for Greyhound Racing New South Wales as a content creator. So I'm always around dogs and animals and people. Um, and I did an interview with a guy a couple of days ago and he actually put me into this, so I'm sort of stealing his words, but he said, I'm so glad I grew up with dogs because they teach you so much. They teach you patience. They teach you love, affection, loyalty. And I know that's not the, you know, that's not the tangent people thought I might go on with my dog, but it's so true. Like every day I come home, he, um, he's at the door, ta- tail wagging, mm. tongue hanging out. Like my wife doesn't do that. You know what I mean? <laughs> so, um, Maybe 10 years ago, but not not 36-year-old Orch. Um, so he's my best mate. Like right now, again, people can't see him, but he's curled up behind me. And if he's not curled up behind me, he's at my feet. He follows me around. If I go outside, he'll go outside. We go for a walk every day. He refuses to walk for anyone else. And you just, like, like I've grown up with dogs, and I'm around dogs a lot more now, but they do teach you so many great qualities, and they're just they're the best, mate. Um, so that's what I'm grateful for first. My they dog—they are, are super. I think actually one of mine throughout one of the episodes was my dog, who's probably less energetic than Kevin. He's blind and deaf at the moment, um, and gets a little bit lost. Ends up walking into the um, into the pantry, then his bed. Uh, his bedroom sometimes the thing you said about patience i just want to i just want to say that you'd learn a lot of patience from kevin the first time i met kevin i went to your house and he as we entered the house 
there was a empty thing where the steak comes in like styrofoam <laughs> plastic all over the lounge room and he was sitting <laughs> atop the dining table so i definitely understand that there's probably a bit of patience that comes from spending time with kevin but go on give me give me a second one mate oh mate he's a gem like yeah if i had we could do a whole podcast on the trials and tribulations of kevin the dog but anyway we won't we'll go into um the second thing i'm grateful for so i Hockey obviously has been a big part of my life. I'm really grateful for hockey and um, <clears throat> probably never really expressed that openly too often because you just sort of, you know, if you're in high-performance sport, you're just sort of moving from one thing to the next and you always hear people say, oh, make the most of it because it'll be gone one day and you wish you had it back. And I sort of feel a bit like that, but I'm more at that stage of my life where I look back on, you know, things that I did and achievements and adventures and you just – I'm just really grateful for that. You know, I met I met my wife through hockey. Um, I met you through hockey. I met so many interesting characters and people. I've travelled the world. I've made a living. I've been paid to play. You know, we, we went to a wedding for a friend on the weekend in Dunsborough in WA. Like, I live in New South Wales, but travelled over to Dunsborough to a kid's wedding who I met 15 years ago um, and I'm still friends with today. And, you know, the, all the people we knew there were hockey people and we had the time of our lives. Like we hadn't seen each other for two or three years, some of us, but you just pick right up and sport and hockey, just such a wonderful um, vehicle to, to do all those things. And, you know, it's sort of at that stage now with my kids, I'm starting to think, well, what are they going to do when they get older? What sport are they going to play? It's not even a question of are they going to play sport? You know, they'll have the choice. Obviously, if they don't want to do it, they won't. But um Team sport just is awesome. So I'm grateful for hockey. Awesome, mate. Awesome. Give me three. Three. <laughs> Depending oh, on who God. listens to this, they'll say, oh, of course. Of course he said the local pie shop. My my local bakery, <laughs> Icky Sticky Tissery in Lawn, that's what it's called, Icky what Sticky Tissery. Oh, mate. It, it screams pompous wanker, but... It's it's awesome, and for a couple of reasons. One, the coffee there is really good. I need coffee to survive, right? Um, so do a lot of people, especially with young kids. You sort of get to this stage of life where you have a coffee in the morning, then you get to about this time, two or three in the arvo, and you just feel like you're going to die, so you need more coffee. And this place provides the goods for us most days. Not only that, the food there is really healthy, um, and they, they've got this sort of odd system where – they only make so much, man. They don't make stuff and throw it out. And they're not just a pie and sausage roll shop. They make delicious sandwiches and wonderful cakes. And my, my little girls love going down there. And obviously, you have everything in moderation. But we spend 50 bucks there on a day, get everyone something nice. The girls are lovely. Um, service is great. And I can hear, you know, some of our friends say, of course, he says the pie shop. <laughs> the big girl loves the pie. But um, I'm willing to go and, and have a good time there. Like, this is my only question, but this is my only criticism of them. How much you reckon is too much for a pie? Oh, um, this is dangerous territory. I I think that if you if you're over the six fifty mark, I feel like you're going to say it's post seven, aren't you? Well, Luke McPherson ain't going to Icky Sticky. <laughs> I can't imagine Icky Sticky sponsoring the show. Not unless he not unless he busts open the piggy bank or steals your old man's wallet. What are we working with? We're talking eight fifty for a pie. Jesus. And they're charging you for sauce. Uh I don't know, because I'm not a sauce man. 
Ah, okay. Well, I guess if you're paying eight fifty for a pie, I'm not putting sauce on it because it would want to be the best pie. <laughs> in, uh, it would want to not have any Heinz needed. Uh, you know, there's this old Simpsons episode where they show like how a hot dog is made. It's like a bit of a pigeon, a bit of a rat, and a bit of a boot. It all falls in the blender, and that's how a hot dogs made. These pies, mate, they are ridgy dig. They are A grade. I'm going to say Angus beef, probably three hundred days old. Flaky, crispy pastry. The, the thing fed. doesn't fall apart. Yeah, grass fed. Um, so yeah, <laughs> animals. My dog, the hockey, and my bakery. There you go. There's three different things that I'm grateful for. They're three. They're three good ones. And as you said, you've listened to a bit of the show. And and no shame to people that say you know they're very grateful for their family. But the thing I love about you, Orch, is is your you're your own man and you always will be. And uh and your gratefulness was definitely something that suggested that. Now I'll go into my three. Um mm. I've got I've got a couple of interesting ones, but I will I will sort of pinch your idea because when you said made to order, there's a sushi shop where I go to university in Fremantle, and at three o'clock every day, they sort of make the same amount of sushi every day. It's Haru sushi. Um, you'll, you'd, you'd know it if you spend a bit of time in Fremantle, but they make the same amount of stuff every day. And then anything that's left over at three o'clock, just chucking it in containers, five bucks. Um, so I I'm thought just... you were about to say, I thought you were about to say, I'm hanging out in the bins in the alley. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's maybe next. I might walk through the back way to see if there is anything out the back later on, but it's five bucks. Get myself two little plastic containers, 10 bucks, and just a beautiful little Haru sushi, the little Japanese um, man behind the counter yelling at you. You have no idea what he's saying, but he seems very enthusiastic. Um, and I always get myself a little feed. So that's been, that's been very good. Um, loving Fremantle and loving Haru Sushi. Now, so what happens? What happens if you get there at say two fifty five and they're not doing the cheap deal yet? Do you just hang out and wait, oh, mate? You know me. You know for a fact that last week I got there and I was like, "When's the stuff go on sale?" To the girl behind the counter, and she said, "Oh, three o'clock." And I was like, "Okay." So then I just went and sat at the bus stop out the front of Haru Sushi until the clock struck three. And then I walked in and was like, oh, is it on sale? Is it? Oh, oh I'll take a couple of these then. <laughs> oh, where's the time gone? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. Oh, what are the chances? Um, <laughs> now, as we all do, I was talking, I was whinging with a girl at my workplace during the week um, because we all, for some reason, we love we love to whinge and we were whinging about all the things that are going on in our life. We've got uni and work and exercise and all this stuff. And then we sort of both decided that we're in a very privileged situation to be people that a want to, and B can fill their days with so many things. All the stuff that we're doing is very productive. So we sort of changed our way of thinking that it's actually a bit of a privilege to be stressed because there's people out there who, for whatever reason, can't be stressed and can't be overwhelmed um, because either they're not the type of person that has the initiative to fill their day with things or they literally for whatever reason can't. So I was thinking during the week, I'm very stressed and overwhelmed all the time, but it's actually a privilege to be able to have all this, all this stuff on, on my plate. And I'm very grateful. It's all stuff that's, you know, moving me towards my goals, which is nice. It's a tough one, right? Sometimes you got to, I really love the phrase zooming out. 
and zooming in, you can do as well. But if you're zooming out and looking at everything in its totality, you can see, you know, and your podcast is a great example, mate, something that it's hard to start something. It's really hard. It's really hard to keep doing something. So credit to you for what is it, 20-odd weeks of, um, you know, putting your balls on the on the line and, and at least trying to do something with yourself. So I appreciate that, mate. Good on yeah, you. and we're both very good starters of things me and you we both love starting things um, and it's very hard to continue now number three throughout my whole journey over the last little while i've just just been and it's a weird phrase to say but i'm just i'm trying to fall in love with myself at the moment so there's a lot of time in my life where i haven't necessarily liked myself or my own company but my goal at the moment is just to be in love with myself because I'm one of those people that always say you know someone that I'm dating or a friend or mom and dad everyone's so great you're so great you're so great oh she's so great but I'm trying to fall in love with Luke McPherson um and I'm I'm getting there and I was just thinking throughout the week that I'm I'm very grateful. I've obviously put in a lot of effort to get to the stage where where you can sort of love yourself and fall in love with your own company. But I'm getting I'm getting closer every day and I'm and I'm very grateful to be in this situation that I am now. It's all been hard work and you know I've had a lot of help along the way, but a lot of it's been my own hard work and I'm just very grateful to be where I am, mate. So there you go. There are my there are my three. I reckon, mate, the um the love yourself one's an interesting one because I think a lot of people, well, in Australian culture and society anyway, can think of that as arrogance. But you, you know, we know each other. Obviously, I like I like myself, but I think it's more of a place of confidence. And um, <clears throat> you know, you can't. How do you expect other people to fall in love with with who you are or, or like what you're doing if you don't, you know, like it yourself? So, a uh, question without notice. What do you what do you like? What do you love about yourself? If you had to name three things in the spirit of three things with gratitude, I'll put you on the spot. What do you love about yourself? One of them is very is a very shallow answer, um, but obviously I don't I don't mind looking at myself with my shirt off at the moment, uh, especially <laughs> early in the morning uh, <laughs> when, I, when I haven't quite. But um, that's what I like. I like I like my focused nature rather than saying i want to read more or rather than saying i want to do this or that i'm actually just doing it so i've started reading a lot more which which i'm really loving about myself um and i like my perspective on things that i can see the bigger picture i i obviously still get stressed and 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 stuff like that but i think i'm pretty level-headed and i can understand how i'm feeling see things through other people's perspectives, how they might be feeling. So they're probably the three, the three at the moment um, that at the moment I'm starting to really love about myself. Love it, mate. Thank you. I'll handball back much. to you. You can, you can keep running with it now. <laughs> cheers. Cheers. Thank you. Um, who's, who's running this, who's running this thing, Matt? Um, now, <laughs> it's a hostile takeover. <laughs> it is. It is. This, next week I'll be tuning into Between the Years with Simon Orchard and be like, what's going on? Um, now, obviously you're a hockey player, really. A lot of people who know your name would know you as a hockey player. Um, obviously you're really taking off in the worlds of, content creation for greyhound racing but probably first and foremost to a lot of people you're still a hockey player now tell me a little bit about your journey for people that don't know you i think you headed over to perth in the early 
2000s when you joined the national squad. You're from New South Wales, obviously, um, up in Maitland, which is sort of, you know, around the Wollongong, that sort of the coast where everyone loves over in, in New South Wales. Tell me a little bit about yourself coming through as a hockey player and when you first moved over to the, the great city of Perth. Yeah, well, I grew up in a place called Musselbrook. So I was born and raised uh, there, which is, what are we, probably two and a half, three hours north uh, west of Sydney, right? So um, not many people there, 10,000 probably. It's become a really big coal mining area and Maitland's probably an hour or two up the road from, from Musselbrook and obviously then you keep going further down to Sydney. But it's changed quite a bit in um in my 36 years. I'm 36 now. But when I grew up, mate, it was a nice place to grow up. It was just a typical country town where, you know, your parents, well, my parents played sport, a lot of sport, not just hockey, but a bunch of sort of different things. And they threw me into and gave me the opportunity to do heaps of stuff um, as a young kid. And I wasn't, you know, I've changed obviously quite a bit. Um, <clears throat> but I was a pretty quiet kid and pretty... Um, a pretty good student as well. So, you know, I worked pretty hard at school when I was quite young and my sporting stuff didn't really kick in until that sort of teenage sort of year. So I played a lot of soccer growing up and school school sport, you know, swam cross-country athletics, was always involved in those carnivals and stuff and and doing pretty reasonably. And then mum and dad decided, I can't, I don't actually know why, like why they decided to move to Maitland, but we we're about, I was 15 going into year 10 and we just picked up, summer holidays you know we sort of we said goodbye to everyone in year nine and then <laughs> we were down the road an hour for year 10 and um looking back it was a great mood because it just gave us access to heaps of different opportunities and I think that's probably the reason if I think about it mum and dad wanted us to be closer to you know a bigger city better schooling potentially um sporting um opportunities were sort of taking off for me and, and my two younger brothers as well at that stage and um, moved down there at 15 and finished school. And that's sort of where the move, I guess, was sort of to initiate some some of my sporting prowess. But it quickly <laughs> it quickly meant my schooling went downhill. And it's not something that I'm proud of. Like my UAI, I don't know what it's called now, an ATAR I think it might be called, but my UAI was despicable, like despicable, disgusting, embarrassing um, <clears throat> for me. And I'm not saying that, you know, my score was – um, a 40 or thereabouts was uh, anywhere near my potential. And that's something that I've really tried to hone in on throughout my life, try and maximise my potential, make the most of what I've got. But at that stage, you know, hormones, couldn't really be told anything except wanted to be an Australian hockey player. And that single-mindedness obviously helped me get to where I got to. Um, we'll go into it, I'm sure, a little bit more. But playing for Australia at 20, um, going to a couple of Olympics, World Cups, you know, Com Games, all that sort of stuff, and and carving out a pretty decent career of ten sort of plus years in that high performance program. So, um, yeah, on the way, I had to move to Sydney and take up opportunities there, and then obviously moved to Perth um, as a 20, 20 year old kid. I think like packed packed two bags, get told you got to move to Perth and be there in two weeks. You go back on the plane from. Perth to Sydney where the tournament was that we were playing in and I was back in Perth two weeks later with no mates, a couple of friends from the squad, um, no family obviously and and dreams of playing hockey. So what is it like? It. What is it like as a as a 20 year old? Obviously a lot of the athletes I I talk to a majority of you have to relocate um 
to move away and you're, and you're quite young. What was it like as a 20-year-old? Obviously, you mentioned earlier in the episode that you have a close family and a close relationship. What's it like when you suddenly you're a country boy and a few years later you're living, you're living in Perth um, and you're basically by yourself, as you said? Yeah, it's really interesting, right? Like I remember getting, I remember getting on the plane um, and flying back to Perth, and it's so like, for lack of a better word, um, not embarrassing or lame, but like I was sort of tearing up, flying over, thinking, "This is it. I've done it. I've made it." Like twenty year old kid, I'd aspired to be in the Australian Institute of Sport and the Cookbooks program my whole life, and I was sort of on the verge of making that happen. And you know, you get there, you're full of bravado and you don't really want to let anyone see any weakness, especially in an environment where you're playing against established men who have been in and around the program for years and years. I'll never forget my first training session. So you get there, you get off the plane, you rock down to training, get all your new gear. You think you're pretty good. Um, and one of the blokes absolutely railroaded me on the field, like buckled me over. Um, and I thought, I've blown my knee. Like that's how hard he hit me. And it was sort of like a, whether it was intentional or not, it was sort of like a welcome you know, welcome to the program. Um, and that sort of hardened me a little bit. I've sort of, throughout my hockey career, I sort of had a, well, I tried to have a hardened sort of edge and sometimes it bordered on crossing the line, I guess. Most of the time it was it was fine. But, yeah, getting over there, I guess I had a bunch of issues sort of emerge in the first couple of years that um, only with the benefit of hindsight I can really look back on and say, oh, that was anxiety or that was mental health, not depression, I think more anxiety, like stuff just started popping up that was worrying me that either didn't exist or was purely a function of my own brain just overthinking things. Um, and, you know, I've I've had some anxiety issues in the past, but I think they really reared, them, reared their heads or reared its head when I moved to Perth and I was taken out of my comfort zone away from all my friends that I grew up with, you know, missed out on 18th, missed out on 21st, your younger brothers having birthday parties, family gatherings, you just miss all that. And then all of a sudden you're just sort of told, not get on with it, but if you want to do it, you've got to be here. And that's the hardest thing to get your head around. It's really interesting because it's obviously you're having all those thoughts and I know that you said hindsight, you started to see them a lot more, but you debut in 2008. And then 2010, you win World Cup, Com Games gold medal, and you're named Kookaburra's Player of the Year. So people from the outside would be like, oh, he's taken to it like a duck to water. Like it must have been so easy for him. Did you know in the moment that things weren't quite perfect or was it only sort of once you started to reflect when you were a little bit more mature and a little bit more settled in the squad? Because a lot of guys, they don't, they don't also want to speak up because – you know, they just want to be the best hockey player. They don't want to have any distractions or anything tarnishing their their name, I suppose. What was it like? Well, the beauty of the duck analogy, uh, Luke, is that on the surface, the duck is gliding with ease across the water and underneath the duck is pedaling like a madman trying to get to where he wants to go. And that's a, it's a great analogy. You know, on the surface, yeah. You, you look at the stat sheet or the list of achievements and accolades, 2010, you, you can't do much more um, from a team point of view I'm talking. And obviously I had a pretty good individual year as well that was that was rewarded in certain sort of um, certain areas. But I think the 
you've got the support networks around you. Most clubs do or clubs, you know, systems, performance programs. You usually have like psychology um, teams or someone you can go and talk to. You might have athlete, athlete liaisons that you can mess around with. But to be honest, early days, a lot of that stuff, and we're talking, what are we, 2008, yeah, so 15 years ago, it was still very much in its infancy. It was very much like, especially for government-funded programs like the hockey program, they basically will put this form in front of you and say, look, fill out this wellness chart. Go around and, you know, are you an 8 out of 10 for happiness? Yeah, sure. Are you 6 out of 10 for uh, feeling content? Yeah, sure. And when you sign it, you get $12,000 from the government. So as a young kid, you know, it might be it might be 8000 it might be 15000 whatever it is. But as a young kid, you say, oh, give me the money because KFC and the casino are just down the road and I want to have a good time. Um, and, you know, there's days where – we would do that just to blow off steam. It wasn't ever an issue for us, but you can see how people get trapped into this environment of, all right, you have to be elite on the field. And when you go away from the, the field, you don't have the support network to knock you back in or help you get back into line if you're struggling. And to answer your question about did I see it coming, it's sort of like it sort of came out in a few different ways. Like I had this chest issue, right, for the first six months that I was in Perth and some days I wouldn't train. Some days I'd be mid-training and I'd have to pull up and I'd be like, what's going on? Like my chest is hurting. What What is this problem? We get MRI scans. We do um, ultrasound. I take medication. And then eventually one of the doctors said, mate, have you ever read anything about anxiety? And hands me a pamphlet. And I'm like, well, that might be it. And funnily enough, bang, overnight this chest pain disappears. Yeah. Um, and I become myself again. So, uh, mate, it's, you know, I'm, I'm literally thinking back now. I can remember sitting in my bed, ringing my dad, having a panic attack that first year. I didn't know it was a panic attack, but I just rang him. like, mate, I can't breathe. I don't know what's going on. Like, what's happening? He's like, mate, just calm down. Everything's all right. Deep breaths. And that's the sort of stuff as a 20 or a 21-year-old ish. Most people aren't born being able to understand what that stuff is all about. And that's what really I get inside my own head a lot. Um, and that stuff knocked me around. But on the surface, getting on the hockey field, it was a breeze, man, because my life outside of it sometimes was so so challenging. And then it comes to 2015, and I guess it's sort of almost, if you look at our relationship, um, selfishly, 2015, there was almost a bit of a catalyst or a turning point where you made a blog post in – uh, early October 2015, basically detailing your anxiety and you took a bit of time away from the game. Now, I know that we've we've skipped a fair bit there, but you'd won a World Cup in 2014. Again, you, you blokes were on top of the world and suddenly 2015, you're heading into an Olympic year and you decided to take some time off. Can you talk to me about that decision? Because obviously myself, I've suffered from mental health problems throughout my life and and the first steps were always were always the hardest um, because, you know, you don't know how people are going to react to you. You don't know what type of feelings you're going to cause in other people. Can you talk to me about the lead up to the blog post in, in 2015 and where your head was at? Yeah, well, it's funny, right? Like I'm reading just a, just a little fraction of the blog post now. Like, listen, listen to this. It doesn't, it sounds like a different guy. I remember biting into a sandwich one day and seeing blood on the bread. My gums were bleeding. At, thir- at first I thought nothing of it, but then I Google bleeding gums, bang, leukemia. 
pops up. And then I remember thinking to myself or telling myself, all right, you might have this. And then the battle, the mental battle of trying to overcome this horrible, hideous disease begins. And that is enormously fatiguing. Some people will be like, well, don't think about it. Like, that's the challenge, right? If I say don't think of a purple elephant, what do you think about? Mm. Um, So for me, yeah, looking at this blog post, can see that I'm struggling, you know, lymph nodes might be swollen. You know, we play a physical contact sport, might have got whacked by someone and something pops up somewhere and all of a sudden I'm pushing on it. I'm getting my teammates to push on it. And people must have thought, this guy's like crazy, for lack of a better word. Mm. Um, so if you're going through all this stuff, but basically not by yourself, but internally you're trying to get through all this stuff and then juggle what is a really intense environment on the field eventually something's going to break. And I think I said it earlier, hockey was easy. Oh, not easy, but, you know, that was the easiest part of my life because I didn't have to think about much. Um, but I remember feeling in the lead up to to Rio that it was just I was fraying at the edges and um, a training session in particular up at Hale that we trained near the old Hale school there or, the, sorry, the current Hale school. Um, and... We finished and someone said, oh, we've got to go to gym now. And I had not snapped, but I was like, you know what? Fuck this. Fuck the gym. Fuck this program. Fuck it. And there was a couple of young guys around me at the time who were like, oh, man, it's all good. But I remember thinking at the time, well, okay, I'm affecting other people now. This is That's the straw that is breaking the camel's back. Like these dudes are young, impressionable. They're trying to make their way in the world. They don't need me bringing them down or taking the energy out of the room or giving them any reason not to be motivated to be the best hockey players they could be. So, yeah, within, I think, 48 hours, um, I sat down with our psychologist. We agreed on a plan of action. I went and talked to the coach. I told him I'm out and need to step away for a while. He was like, of course, we support that. Um, But in the background, by the way, there's an Olympics in 12 months. That was my internal monologue. There's an Olympics in 12 months. You're the best team in the world. We've won one Olympic gold medal ever in men's hockey. Um, but, yeah, stepped away and it was great, basically. Do you, do you remember how long your time away was and what you actually did? Because a lot of people, they sort of they step away and it's obviously big news. You know, I was reading articles today in the lead up to this. You know, you're in the West, in the Sydney Morning Herald, all this, all this stuff, and then it, dies down after a week and you're just by yourself sorting things out. Do you remember what you actually did? Because you came back and obviously went to that Olympics in, in 2016. What, what were some of your processes that you went through during that time off or was it just to completely disassociate from hockey and, and try to get to a better place? What did you, what did you do, mate? Well, to be honest, a a big part of my frustration, Luke, was the fact that, um, hockey become not a burden, but a bigger piece of our lives. Like when I first started, it was very amateur. We'd train pre-work hours, so, you know, 6 till 8 or 5.30 till 7.30. Um, and that just sort of kept encroaching year on year. We obviously had Rick Charlesworth come in at some stage and, and he became the coach of the team. And he demanded excellence. That's why he's the best coach I've ever had and one of the best, um, you know, mentors I've ever, and still to this day, still claiming to be. 
but he his emphasis was hockey focused, and it was so strange for a guy that achieved so much. You know, he's a politician, a doctor. He played state cricket. He obviously went to what four or five Olympics, and then had the one taken away where they boycotted. Um, for him to sort of put all this emphasis on hockey, sometimes I struggled with that because I knew how much of a high achiever he was in his other life, and it just sort of meant that things like university, for instance, which I was trying to do fell by the wayside sometimes and I'm not blaming the program it was just what we needed to do that to be the best in the world and people will say yeah you can do your uni and train half-heartedly and come third or fourth um but we were flying 2014 we were untouchable like the best I think the best hockey team to ever play in a major tournament um so we knew that the opportunity to win an Olympic gold medal was so close um, but I was struggling with, all right, my career is coming towards an end. I want to have something to look after myself, my partner, my family one day. And I just couldn't find the balance, balancing act. And that was one piece of it. Just things like, you know, I want to go and have a beer on a week diet if I wanted to. I wanted to see people go, go to local trivia and do something different, but I couldn't because, you know, you got to get to bed or you got to eat right. Um, so there's a lot of different sort of things, and I just tried to do that. I went to uni. I threw myself in, you know. It was lecturers and tutors like, oh, two days in a row. Like, well, to what do we owe the honour? And I'm like, yeah, well, my other thing fell through. Um, but it wasn't just like I still did hockey. That was the thing. Like I remember going down to Freo training, Fremantle training, where we both play, and one of our good mates was like, what the fuck are you doing here, man? It's 9 o'clock on a Thursday. What are you doing? And I'm like, man, I just, just want to have a bit of fun. Like – I just want to take it easy, hang out with my mates and have a good time. Um, and that's what I did for, I reckon, best part of six to eight weeks, couple of months. The guys kept traveling, kept training. They played some tournaments and I just wasn't a part of it. I just watched from the side. So obviously you you came back into the program after, after having a bit of time out and you end up making it back into the team for the 2016 Olympics. Now I know that you said obviously 2014 you guys are you're basically the Globetrotters. And then 2016 it's it's I don't know, it's close to a disaster almost. Um what was it like after you'd you'd had that time off, you returned for a massive tournament, a lot of guys that was going to be their their last Olympics. Um I guess can you start with with what happened for the uninitiated, the people that that don't quite understand the context and what happened for you guys at the 2016 Olympics? Yeah, well, disaster is pretty good words, like the Hindenburg of Australian hockey Olympic campaigns, right? Um, and, I, and I feel weird saying it because it's like, who who am I? Like, that's not what this show is about. It's not about coming on and being like, hey, mate, you, you really let us down there. Like, I feel, <laughs> I feel weird saying it. But, but yeah, I guess that was the only way I could lead up to the question. No, I'll call a spade a spade. Like, we're all very aware. Well, I think we're all very aware of what happened. Um, but, yeah, there's there's always – there's often factors, contributing factors to any poor performance, and usually it's four or five or six things, right? It's never just oh, one thing cost us. It's it, – well, rarely, sorry. It's normally four or five different things. Like that year – or when I eventually came back, sorry, for instance, um, and this will take a slight – side route and then we'll get back onto the point but we had this psychology um team in place that rick brought in uh at some point between olympics between 2012 and 16 right and it was this three-pronged attack of 
uh, two ladies and a fellow who basically stripped our program to its core. And, you know, we talk the podcast um, between the ears. So that's what it was all about. It was about getting into our psyche and trying to work out who we were, how we could be better. There was this missing aspect of our game that maybe we weren't tapping into. And some of the stuff we did, like, um, so interesting thinking back. Like, I remember floating out in Cottesloe Beach, not many waves, but still floating on our backs doing puzzles on waterproof paper because we were trying to, we were trying to remove everything, all the um, uncontrollables out of our mind and focus on a task. That was part of our psychology program. That's how we're trying to learn to train our brain to be single-minded on what we're trying to achieve. That's just one example, yeah. right? We had another example where they came in, the team came in, and they gave everyone in the squad a position uh, basically in the team. It was either you're on the bus, you're thinking about getting on the bus, or you're off the bus. And you wanted to be, they wanted us to be on the bus. Everyone was on, right? That was sort of the analogy. So they just, uh, however they decided, everyone in the squad got put in a group. We went to our separate rooms and they said, hey, guys, I was in the maybe getting on the bus. But the other groups, you know, hey, guys, you're on the bus. What are we doing well? What can we keep doing? Guys, you aren't on the bus. So you can imagine how these guys felt thinking like, well, what do you mean? Like, I've been sitting on the bus the whole time, having a great time on the bus. Like, I thought I was on the bus. There's some people who'd be like, yeah, no, fuck the bus. I'm not getting on. And I, this is this is driving me further away. But, you know, this is the yeah. insights into high-performance sport and the level of where you're trying to get to and what you're trying to achieve. There's so many different factors. And to go back to your original question, what went wrong, a lot of people didn't mesh with this style um, <clears throat> of preparation, like it or not. A lot of people are just very comfortable being comfortable. And that's one of the big things about life and sport. You see all these, you know, again, um, memes or slogans, the magic happens outside the circle or get comfortable being uncomfortable because that's where you create um, the awesome stuff. You know, those sort of things. For me, I was always happy to push myself and, and feel a little bit of discomfort because I knew personally I was going through this shit in my mind, which was always making me uncomfortable. So hockey, yeah, whatever, that's okay. But for a lot of people, they just want to play. So immediately you've got all these sort of guys getting um, abrasive at the fact that, well, what are we doing? This like, why are we floating in the water again? I can't understand this. What's this got to do with hockey? A lot of people couldn't wrap their head around that. So I think there was a disconnect there. Secondly, our best players didn't play as well as they could. A lot of our team didn't play as well as they could. Fundamentally, that's what it's all about. So that was a big part of it. Um, our most important player, Mark Knowles, who was maybe at that stage the reigning FIH player of the year or had been like a year or two earlier. Um, I actually hit him in the foot with a ball at training maybe six months earlier and he had a bone fracture or a bone bruise, which was causing him immense distress. And he was our most important player. So he was limping through that year. Um, to get to the Olympics, we had uh, probably a, a patchy build-up. Like we sent a team to Europe to play in the Champions Trophy two months before the Olympics. We sent a young team. We won the Champions Trophy. We had all these young guys full of enthusiasm and brimming, brimming with confidence who were then left out of the side in favour of guys who we left home who were more established, experienced players. And I'm not saying they didn't deserve their spot, but you, you throw all this stuff in a pot, Luke, and you start mixing it around and you start to see, all right, I can see some cracks emerging once we got to rio uh a bug went through matt goads got crook chris sorello was sick he was probably i would say half a day 
away from being ruled out of the Olympics. He was that crook. I was sitting next to him in the food hall, just asked full tracksuit, Brazilian weather. Everyone's walking around in shirts and T-shirts, uh, shirts and shorts. And we're sitting there huddled together in our tracksuits thinking, oh, I hope this goes away in time for the Olympics. Mm. Like, it's not a Saturday game for your local club. Yeah. Um, and that swept through and made four or five other guys crook as well. So, look, you start looking at it all, man, and it paints a pretty good picture of, of what went wrong. Now, what's it like? Obviously, there's, as you said, there's multiple factors to why things go wrong and, and it's natural that things sometimes in life don't go the way that you want them to. But as you said, we've won one gold medal at the Olympics ever. Suddenly, you're this world-beating team and it doesn't, it doesn't go right. I guess how long now you seem like you can talk pretty openly about it, but I can't imagine that from day one, you were like, Oh, well is, is what it is. Um, and obviously this, this shows about transferring lessons that we learn, but I guess how long did it take you to actually come to terms with, with that? Cause it, it must've been pretty hard. It was sort of a shock for the whole, the whole nation really. Well, yeah, definitely a shock. I think there's this sort of, well, it's actually written. I was going to say it's an unwritten rule about the Australian men's hockey team that you just pencil them in for a medal, but it's a written thing. They put it in, you know, the papers do their mm. their rag the day before the Olympic starts. Here we go. We're going to win medals here, here, and here. Yeah. And this isn't to criticise scribes because I'm that's my degree, journalism, yeah. and I've worked in newspapers, but I haven't jumped over any poles or hit any balls in the goal, most of them. Um, yeah. it's bloody hard to win Olympic gold medals. That's why they don't just come around every so often because it's really, really hard. Um, so, yeah, the pressure and expectation is there. The thing that I probably <clears throat> didn't maximise enough in the moment was I, I, was very, um, I was very comfortable with the whole thing. Like I would have talked to you like this straight after the whistle. Didn't really phase me i know it sounds stupid but and some i guess one criticism could be we didn't care enough and i think that actually was some of the feedback at some stage from the coaches like do you really care and the zoom out mentality do i really care it's not the end of the world um but i probably wasn't as in tune with my teammates enough about how they were feeling about you know pressure expectation disappointment what if we don't win I, I probably didn't venture into those aspects and you know I was 30 at that stage so I was old enough to probably do that but I was really focused on just trying to play my role sounds very cliched play my role do my job not let anyone down uh, make my family proud make all my friends and people back home proud that by the time it finished I was sort of like thank god <laughs> that's sort of done um and I can get on with whatever's next. So it sucked. Don't get me wrong. Like we should have a, we should have an Olympic gold medal, the men's hockey team from my period. We don't. We blew it in London. Um, and we really, really blew it in Rio. Now we we jump around on this show. It's it's not very linear. I, I, I say often that progress isn't linear and zoom out and you'll see that your graph is trending up. But this show is a complete um, if you sort of zoomed out, it'd look some sort of Venn diagram slash spider web type of thing that we roll with. But one thing that stuck out for me when we were talking about your early twenties and your time, your time with the cookbar, as you said, hockey was, it was almost your, 
your peaceful pace because things in your life weren't going that well. Can you remember what some of the, what were some of the emotions that you were feeling outside of hockey at the time? Because when I saw your blog post, I assume that, you know, it was the pressure of being in the environment or, you know, not being able to be free to, be free and feeling like you're losing some of your youth. But what was, it seems like your answer suggests that there was a bit more going on. Can you sort of speak to that a little bit, mate, and the way that you were feeling at the time? Well, I guess I just, I always just had this real fear, fear, uh, feeling of worry, right? Like nervousness, unease, just like something was wrong. And I think, you know, obviously learning a lot more about my mental health sort of journey and stuff now that they're textbook signs of anxiety. I never felt, um, and, you know, we had this, we had a conversation, oh, it must be, I don't know, 12 years ago now where we sat at that cafe, right? You, me yeah. and your brother. I've got the cafe written down in the book here. We might touch on that soon. Yeah, so we'll get to that soon. But I was never... Um, well, I don't think a depressive type. I never thought about, you know, taking my life. I never thought I'm not good enough. I never thought um, I'm people be better off without me. I never have thought that, which straight away made me feel better about what I was thinking because I just, you know, death is what I'm most afraid of in life. Um, <clears throat> but yeah, that feeling of just something was always wrong, and it just made it really difficult for me to relax and just take things easy. Like I've never, I've always sort of been. And you can probably tell I've always been very active and um, conversational and I, I like being, um, well, trying to be a, a sort of shining light in the room, not actively, but like I like making people feel good about themselves and trying to lift them up with my presence. And um, sometimes I was probably hiding my true feelings because I was so busy doing that. But, you know, with the benefit of hindsight again, it just it's just sort of, yeah, worry and sadness. Like I, I would achieve something on the hockey field and have a shower and cool down, and then I'd be sitting there feeling this sort of emptiness about what was going on. And I tried to, I think I eventually linked it back to purpose. The hockey, the and the way that the hockey calendar goes, right? Say we play in the Olympics. All right, you're on this enormous mountain, and then you basically jump off or get pushed off the other side. And you're free falling down and down and down for two weeks because you don't do anything. People, you're not really checking in on each other. That's basically like, all right, see you in two weeks, do whatever you want. And you've got to try and slide back into this life where everyone's working or they've got kids or they've already got plans because that's how people work in life. And you're just sort of floating in and being like, hey, oh, like I've got a box of beers. Who wants to have some fun? <laughs> or, you know, and that's just not how it works. So, of course, my friends are always awesome and they would sort of move heaven and earth to do something with me. Um, <clears throat> but it's not always like that. And after your two weeks, you'd start the slow trek back up Mount Everest to the top. And then, you know, that would be a tournament in Malaysia in April or a European trip in July. And you'd just have forever be doing these peaks and troughs. And in the, in the absence of other things, yeah, where was the purpose? And that's why university and study and, you know, blogging, content creation on tour, it was all sort of just ways not to distract myself, but in a way it was, right? Part of it was just distracting myself and not dealing with the issue. Part of it was actually soothing and giving me purpose in life. And that's why I love that zoom out mentality because you can get so focused on what you're doing and you can sort of lose track of where, where the hell am I going? Like, what am I doing? 
Um, so yeah, that that's sort of how I was feeling, and I I haven't really I hadn't really comprehended that until the last six five or six years. It's it's this is going to be a weird question to answer, but sometimes I'm I wonder because I'm a bit like you where I didn't have purpose and now I've got purpose and I find that I'm busy all the time and I'm like, well, am I just using that that busyness to distract me from things? Am I really content? Should I pull back? But then I'll be lost for purpose and it's a really fine balance of actually finding yourself what are things that you're using to mask the way that you feel and what are things that are actually how you feel? Cause I know that you said, Oh, you know, you like to, you, you like to be someone who makes people smile and, you know, a bit of a life of the party and you feel like that was masking things, but, it, and I'm the same, but at the same time, it's like, well, I don't want to lose that about myself because that's one of the aspects of myself that I quite like. So it's really interesting. Now, 2015, after the blog, I sent you a text and I was year 11, like 16 or something, 16, 17 at the time and said, hey, mate, like um, got your number and said, look, a lot of the things that you were feeling was was how I was feeling. And it, and it ended up in, we went for a coffee. It was going to be me and you, but you asked if I minded if my older brother tagged along, my older brother James, just to sort of, I guess, be a, be not a mediator, but he just sort of sat there looking confused most of the time but i think it made <laughs> i don't no, know if it made <laughs> i don't know if it made me more comfortable but you seem more comfortable that he was he was there i guess what are you what are your memories of our of our little ex- experience then it was almost yeah i remember that you had a certain haircut it was almost pre-olympics i think you had a haircut and you caught you were calling it your tv time haircut um, because you knew you were going to be on national TV. So you had a new Swish haircut when we went and sat and had a coffee. What do you remember about that? Well, as an aside, I, I did get on TV, not for the hockey. Remember I uh, – well, yeah, Tell the, the story. For the uni- well, I'll, tell a, I'll just give a tease. How about that? For yeah. the uninitiated, uh, there was this group called the Rio 9 who got arrested in, um, in Rio – at the back end of the games. And that it's sad to say, honestly, it is that that was my crowning achievement from the Rio Olympics. But when I go to like, say I go to a sportsman's lunch or a hockey event, people like are actively yelling out, tell the story about the jail. And like, they don't care about the world cups and yeah. all this other gibberish. They just want to hear what was jail like? I'm like, yeah, yeah. anyway. Um, <clears throat> back to your question. Yeah. The, I remember the meeting and I remember why I asked James because I thought you're a kid for starters, and I want a I want a running mate here to um <clears throat> to help me if I have to actively manage it because I didn't know what I was walking into right yeah um and that's the fear sometimes with people that reach out like a lot of people that blog post I hit it hit a lot of nerves there's a lot of people and that's the other thing like for everyone who you might publicly comment, say, you know, bravo or, so you know, brave or good on you or we're here for you, mate, et cetera, there would, there'd be 10 times the amount of people who would privately jump in and be like, mate, oh, my life is a mess or this sucks or I can't deal with this. So that was the bit that I wasn't prepared for either. But yours is, they're all welcome and yours is obviously that as well. It's not like I wanted to turn people away, but as soon as I remember sitting down with you i honestly thought um if there's no if there's no break here in the thinking process i don't know if this kid's going to be around 
um, you know, as sobering as that is to say, I'm pretty sure, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm pretty sure one of your lines or one of your phrases was, I'm just sort of waiting to get to an age where yeah. something can happen. Yeah, that was basically how I used to used to think. I even used to, I think, even used to sort of know the ages where I thought if nothing's changed by then. And, and it's funny, this is the first time I've probably talked on the show about my own experiences with with um suicide and stuff but that was definitely a time um when i was like yeah intensely suicidal and um and definitely carried on for a few years and i remember that being the first time anyone in my family found out because obviously james was there and it was sort of indirectly that he found out and no one else would have known for another oh another year or so um and I, well, they might not have known. I guess that was my fear, right? They might not have known. Yeah, yeah, no, exactly. And it's it's weird when someone indirectly finds out something, but it's still a weight off your shoulder. It's not something that you necessarily wanted him to know, but it was sort of a yeah. It was um no, it was very yeah. It was um. What do you think you got out of the chat? Because I don't know. We sort of neither of us really, I guess, knew what we were we were going in for. Oh, I took away the fact that, one, you were really struggling and you were not alone. Like you're a blueprint for thousands of kids probably around the country who, you know, it's a, like we just went through the pandemic, right? But mental Mm -hmm. health, I think I'm right, is an an epidemic. It's an epidemic of like epic proportions where people, kids, a lot of kids especially just struggling big time and the world's changed without getting too much into you know what's wrong with the world or what's right with the world the world has changed and a part of it is the activity of young people online makes it really hard for people to escape their troubles or or things like that at the same time it can be a really great escape for people to get away from stuff but I remember thinking with you well Christ like this kid needs help um, I'm not qualified to give it to him. I'm not going to try and do that. I'm just going to try and be a sounding board and let him hit me with everything that he's got. And I think I'm, well, <laughs> it's sort of ironic, right? I, I felt like I was mentally stable enough to take it all in. But reading this blog over again, I'm clearly, I clearly wasn't, but I <laughs> at, least, at least pretended. And I think, you know, this isn't a, I'm not on the podcast to pump my own ties up, but I feel like that was a part of me and part of me that I still am, am pretty proud of where I could remove my own personal stuff and, um, and at least try and help as best as possible. And, and again, your brother who I'm really close with, I still check in with him, you know, about you um, every couple of months. How's Luke going? What's Luke up to? You know, you're in Bunbury doing your thing down there. You come back, I notice the physical transformation um, and then see you on the weekend for the first time. And, you know, we pick it up like you're just like your brother. We pick it up. We're chatting absolute shit and talking about this and that at the wedding. And um, I just can notice a a huge shift in mentality, which, to be honest, yeah, I I struggled to see that with you so many years ago. And, again, correct me if I'm wrong, but you had a loss in the family, a cousin or something that might have taken his own life you know, around yeah. that sort of period as well. So obviously my first thought was, well, Christ, this kid's going through something. Who's going to help him? How's he going to get the help? Are his family equipped to help? And that's not to say they weren't, but you just you start wondering and, and worrying a little bit about 
well, I care about him. I care about his family and I don't want anything to happen to him. So let's just keep sort of checking in and just trying to make life a little bit better. And I think, well, credit to you, mate, because, yeah, as you, as you said, you've, you've often would flick a text and, and stuff like that. And it, and it definitely did help me to understand that I wasn't alone. Now, I, I don't know if you used to do this, but there was a lot of things where I would go and I'd have that coffee with you or I'd go and I'd sit with mum and dad for a bit or I'd have a breakdown or I'd do this or I'd do that. And, and everything you'd be sort of waiting around for a, maybe this is the turning point. Maybe this is the catalyst, but I guess it's an example of there's a thousand things that you have to do. And there's different things you might have to do a hundred in one day um, to keep you going, to make sure that you're on the right direction. And obviously that was a significant moment for both of us, but it didn't, we both didn't leave and our lives were infinitely better. We've still had to continue to work to make sure that we're on the right path. And I guess that's just an example of sure. There are things that you can do, but it's a, it's a constant um, thing that you have to work on to, to make sure that you're in the right place. Now that sort of leads me to, to a question. What do you, what do you do? Cause I can't imagine that that life's easy that you can just look at your, um, your gorgeous kids and go, Oh yeah, you know, this is pretty easy now. Um, there'd be still things that you, that you have to do. And obviously there's still things for me that I have to do. And I'm, I'm very grateful to be in a better place, but how are you managing your issues at the issues at the moment? How are you, how are you going? I suppose. Well, it's poignant timing, mate, because I'm probably not at my best, to be honest. Um, I, and, you know, again, going back over old ground sort of is helping, to be fair, because my anxiety has taken on different things throughout the years. It was health anxiety when I was, yeah, that 18, 19, 20, 21. Um, then it just, I guess, became general anxi- generalised anxiety about life. Maybe there was a bit of hockey in there as well when I had the time off. And then post-hockey, um, some other shit happened, which, you know, you gotta you got to work out pretty quickly what um what your priorities are and, and how you want your life to lead. So, you know, I guess the um, 2016 I finished um, hockey, was was dropped from the squad uh, by the new coach who came in 2017. Didn't really fight or try too hard to get back in, to be honest. Like, um, would have played, obviously, if they'd, they'd let me, but it wasn't my be-all and end-all. I moved on with life pretty quick. But then 2018, um, one of my younger brothers passed away. So that sort of came, well, out of the blue, right? Like, he was 30. Um, <clears throat> yeah, he's 30, you know, I remember getting a, um, a phone call 1.30, maybe AM on a Monday morning and I, I missed it, but I woke up and it's mum. So naturally an anxious person's brain, let alone a normal person's brain, sorry, probably thinks the worst, let alone an anxious person's brain. So yeah. I'm like, shit, I'm wide awake, right? And I'm starting to think, all right, what the fuck? What's going on? It's one thirty. What's happened? Someone's dead. That's what I'm thinking. And I ring, and as soon as mum answers, I know. I know what has happened. I know someone's dead. I know it's not her. I know it's my dad 
or one of my brothers. And she sort of can't really get the words out, but eventually she just sort of says, oh, it's Ben, he's passed away. And I'm like, all right, well, I'll come home, I'll see you soon, um, get off the phone. It's middle of the night, right? I'm laying there yeah. wide awake. I had to catch. I actually had to catch a flight at six a.m. to go do some work in Melbourne for the for Wimbledon of all things. I was going to do some work placement in Melbourne for Wimbledon, but so I'm awake and my wife sort of rolls over and she's like, "What's going on?" And I'm like, "My brother's dead." <laughs> you know? Like, yeah. That's fucking bullshit. <laughs> yeah. Um. <clears throat> And there's nothing you can – she's like, no, nah, you, you're having a dream, which is a propensity of mine to have these wacky, crazy dreams. Okay, so okay. I'm like, Fuck it, to be honest, um, I'm like, no, nah, no, nah, here's, here's a phone call. I just talked to mum. Anyway, you know, you go through all, all that shit, which people people don't have – thankfully, people don't have much of an idea of what that entails because it's fucking it's, – it's obviously, it's obviously the worst, but it's – really the worst mm. some of the stuff that your family and you sort of have to go through to get from that phone call to the funeral you know 10 days later or 10 weeks uh two weeks sorry um but yeah that sort of shifted my focus and I, the next couple of years became about getting home getting around my family getting around my friends making the most of everything seizing the day you know rah 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 just trying to grab the bull by the horns and make every day count because you never know. And I think, I know this is a little a long-winded, sad way of getting to the point, but I think now I'm coming out of that phase of look after my family, get back to my family, settle myself on the East Coast, get a job and be comfortable. And now I'm getting into the phase of, fuck, my mind is starting to be idle again because I've got, I've set myself up and I'm yeah. comfortable so now I'm starting to get back into my anxious ways of thinking and the health anxiety has sort of reared its head a little bit more. I'm starting to, you know, the typical Google, MND doctor, all that absolute mm. garbage, like yeah. sweaty, sweaty head and, you know, yeah. eight million things pop up. Like, um, But that's natural. Into- Young dads, I, th- I think that's a pretty natural emotion once you start having kids and stuff. Young, young dads, you hear from a lot of them and they're like, oh, now I'm just panicking. Like, you know, what if something happens to me? Um, you know, obviously you're a provider for for your family. So it's it is quite natural and it's oh, it's weird the things that we all feel. I wish we wouldn't, but we all do. So obviously in evolution at some point it it started. The sense of numbness, you reckon. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, just hang on a sec, I just gotta let this dog let this dog out before he barks. There we go. Um <laughs> my wife's saying you said it'd be 40 minutes <laughs> <laughs> she should have known that it wasn't she should have known that oh yeah what a sucker i've done these before I'll, I'll lock myself in here all day if i have to um <laughs> no, people, you know people well if people get this far to start as well done but secondly people will be thinking how's he you know how's this guy gone from like jovial dude to being locked up in rio to his brother dies to like joking about googling shit symptoms again that's just sort of my flow right um yeah. But yeah, morbidity. It just that's my biggest fear, as I said earlier. I don't want to die. I want to be around. And what happened to my brother like lingers large because you can't escape that huge hole. 
that exists in your life. It's everywhere. And like I'm in my parents' house at the moment, staying up here while we're looking to buy a house in the area. And, you know, there's memories of my brother all over the place. There's photos every corner. There's flowers still from the funeral. There's like I've still got some of his like jackets and stuff, which we wore to the funeral because he had like all this, you know, spunk and verve and um, style and charisma and i i want i didn't want to i felt bad getting rid of that but you know that's its whole that's its whole mental health challenge of its own mate i know when you messaged me i was like it sounds cheaper than therapy to come on here <laughs> and it's proving to be because yeah i haven't talked about it people like when people ask it's just easier to just to be like you know what we're all right which yeah. we are we're all right but when you drill into it fuck don't die, please, because yeah. it's the worst, it's the fucking worst. So I lost two, as you mentioned, um, your cousin and a good friend of mine within sort of a six-month period in 2017 when I was obviously going through a lot of a lot of my own struggles, mate. And grief is it's so powerful. And as you mentioned, that that numbness of laying in bed and getting the phone call, which you bravely talked about, I can imagine not well, I can remember. I wasn't obviously laying in bed, but I remember the exact way that you would have been feeling where you're just like, fuck, you know what I mean? You don't, you don't know. It was the first time I'd ever heard James say the C word. Um, my, my brother, when he found out about, um, you told me that on the weekend. <laughs> yeah, I know. I've heard him say it a lot since. Um, but yeah, grief and, and I want you to know that you're not alone because the the thoughts about your own um, morbidity, what's the word? Well, morbidity. Think, yeah, maybe morbidity is not the word. I think I think morbidity. No, there's a, there's a word, but I can't remember it. Anyway, I've, I feel exactly the same. Death is the one thing that terrifies me, obviously. I am starting to achieve a lot of goals and, and one of my biggest fears is that my time will run out before, before I get to one of them. And it's a really, it's a really weird way, especially for anxious people and overthinkers like us to stay present. Um, when you've got all of these things that you want to, you want to achieve and we're always looking forward. And that's the difficult part, right? To stay present. A lot of people will say, well, that's the key to life. They say, if you're depressed, you're living in the past. If you're anxious, you're living in the future. Um, but if you're in the present, then you should be all right. But we tailor that by saying, well, set goals and be ambitious yeah. and strive for stuff. Well, you can't do that unless you look forward. Exactly. Um, so it is hard. And the shitty part about sometimes, not always, but sometimes it takes something to happen to people for you to be like, all right, now I'm going to do it. And, you know, I'm not going to be the guy. I'm not going to cheerlead and be like, you can do it. Get out of there. Have a go. Like, <laughs> you leave it. You won't do it. And I'm not going to, you know, people aren't going to jump out there because I say so. But so, should I stop uh, telling people to go and chase their goals then? <laughs> stop hey, doing can, it. Dude, just watch you, Netflix. It really doesn't, you know. Yeah. Don't listen just, to me. I'll just get off the subscriber list. Um, <laughs> no, because I heard your last one and you were talking, um, you and, you and the guy from the West, I've forgotten his name, sorry, but you were talking about health, being grateful for health right at the start. And I was like, well, yeah, you know, duh. But you can't, sometimes you can't take it for granted. And sometimes it's not even health. It's just accident or total fucking shit show of a situation. 
that takes people away and then you're like, Christ, I should have done that. I should have spoken to him about that or but yeah, I guess I'm I'm I've lived a really good life and it struck me right at the start, right? You're like, Oh, you're a hockey player and I've always I don't I don't care that you mention it, but I've always been like, No, nah, no, nah, I was a hockey player. Now I'm gonna be a content guru or <laughs> that I'm gonna own this and do this with my life. I'm gonna be the best dad there was and then i'm going to move into my next phase yeah um and that's hard for like i say when when you go back to to the real world after your sport um this is a dramatic way of looking at it but people say when you finish sport you die and then you start your new life and then you die again later on well it's not that far from the truth because life isn't it's not normal like it's not normal to be flying around the world and and getting paid to do all this stuff and having people you know, make your food for you and um, sitting in nice seats and getting cheered all the time you do something good, that's not life. Mm. <laughs> like, there's very rarely people clapping and patting you on the back for anything, let alone <laughs> all the time you make a good pass. <laughs> yeah. Now, it's it's interesting because life, as you said, it's not normal. It's different for everything, everyone, mate, and regardless of who you are, you'll have times where it'll be absolutely shit. You'll have times where it'll be really good, and a lot of the time it'll be somewhere in between. Now, Orch, I've loved having a chat to you. Um, I think I can hear either Kevin or Early scratching at the door wanting you to come out, wanting you to come out. I'm not quite sure which one it is. Um, but we always finish the episode. Is there any sort of advice? Obviously, we've talked about a lot of things. We've talked about anxiety. We've talked about being present. We've talked about being open with your emotions. Um, is there any sort of advice that you would give to someone who's made it through this episode um, and wants to sort of learn a lesson from, from Simon Orchard's story? Yeah, I guess off the top of my head, um, it's not going to be war and peace, but you've sort of touched on it. I've touched on it. you got to be yourself. I think if you're genuine and at least trying your hardest to, to do good and, and be as good as you can be, and as I said just, just before, be ambitious and and uh, make the most of your potential, then you can't go wrong because people will see that and genuine genuinity is just one of the best qualities. I think from a mental health point of view or – just a life point of view, you've got to have good people around you. And sometimes that means tightening up your circle of friends and, you know, we're in an age where social media followers, et cetera, that can be viewed as status. Well, that's not important. It's um, it's about the people closest to you that you can pick up the phone and rely on when you need them, you know, um, or vice versa, be there for someone else. So having, a, having good friends or a buddy um, is probably the other point as well. Someone who... Not necessarily like we're different ages. How old are you? 25 or 24? 24. 24. I'm 36. So we're poles apart in terms of age. But having different people at different stages of life helps because 24-year-old me wouldn't have been able to say any a lot of this stuff. Mm. Um, just like 54-year-old me, touch wood, hopefully, <laughs> um, will be able to say even more wonderful things. So that would be it for me, mate. And don't be afraid to make difficult choices and and as I said, right at the start, change tack. Open your spinnaker and head in the opposite direction if you think it can change your life. Well, I'm I'm excited. I know that you said that you've got a little bit of pause. You've settled your family and you started to feel a little bit more settled and you're starting to find worried. So I'm excited to see where your next bit of discomfort comes from because you're gonna have to you're gonna have to force your way into being a little bit uncomfortable to 
to find some more magic, mate. And I can't wait to see what what the future holds for you. It's it's been awesome to to sit down and and have a chat with you. It's also been good. Obviously, we talked a lot of smack at the wedding, um, but it's been good to have microphones so we can actually keep a conversation on track without um me hearing some of your large embellished stories and and me just trying to keep up. It's it's been great chatting to you, mate. It's it's really good to to see you smiling and and I wish you all the best. I, I guarantee everyone that's listens really love this episode. Likewise, mate. Thanks for having me on, bro. As I said at the start of the episode, it was a pretty special chat with Simon. Um, we talked about a lot of incredible things. We actually, for the first time, I shared a bit of my story about the experiences that I've been through and some of my struggles. Um, it wasn't what I went into the episode intending to do, but my story is definitely one that that I'll never shy away from from sharing. I'm I'm in a really good place now, and I and I've always thought that if you are in the position where you can share your story, um, it might help someone else. So you truly do have a responsibility to do so, and that's always what I've believed. But I'm truly grateful for for Simon for coming on the show. He was very brave, very candid. A lot of the things that he talked about um, were were quite hard for him to talk about I'll be honest um but it was really cool to to sit down with him he's someone that I always sort of had as a backup on the on the episode but it's truly one of my favorite episodes to record so I can't believe I waited this long but never mind episode 11 thank you very much for listening make sure you like and subscribe leave a rating leave a review it truly does help the show that's about it from me I reckon In the meantime, we'll be coming back with a couple more episodes, so keep clicking back and checking the podcast feed. Another fortnight away, we've got an excellent episode coming up. But in the meantime, check in on your mind, check in on your mates, and I'll see you next time.